Well, um, this week was a good week. About 50 years ago, January 1973, so I was like less than one year old, the courts in the United States, Supreme Court, decided that a woman could terminate a pregnancy through abortion, and it would encompass all 50 states. And this last week, through a lot of years of the church praying, a lot of the church years of the church trying to proclaim the goodness that every single person that, has, that is conceived is created in the image of God and therefore has the right to life, is that by the grace of God, that law was struck down this week. And so we are super thankful for that. <clears throat> Now, I want to praise God for that, okay? So let me just start from the beginning. Praise God. But let me say this, there's still work to do. Because on one end, things probably won't change that much within the state of California. Is that, in fact, it probably could get a little bit worse, which means the church still has more work to do on one end is, is that. But can, let, me, let me maybe fill in a different side maybe you haven't thought about. Is it's also a phenomenal opportunity for the church to be the church in the midst of this. Things are not going to be pretty here for the, for the next few weeks and months. I think it's going to get extremely chaotic and ugly. I think that there's going to be all kinds of things that are going to come down. But let me just say this for the church. Just because things get difficult does not mean we leave our responsibility and our empowered birthright to act like Jesus in the midst of these situations. In the same way that Jesus, when he was struck on the right cheek, he said, turn what? Turn your left. If a person asks for your cloak, give it to him. If they ask walk a mile, go two. In other words, I really believe now that the way that we're gonna win the argument is not necessarily through words that we use, but I think we're gonna win the argument by how we live our lives, how we care for these moms now that are gonna keep these children, how we, we go about as a church then. I mean, if anybody knows me, one of the reasons that in my family we chose to adopt is I got so tired of Christians telling other people to not abort their children, but then not being willing to then take those kids in as homes that will love them and care for them and bring them up in Jesus. So I, on one end, praise God. On another end, there's still work to do. Is everybody with me? We still have work to do in this. And so church, we can't grow weary and well-doing. We'll, we'll talk about that verse a little bit more. But I think this is gonna be a phenomenal opportunity for the church to be the church and to represent King Jesus at this particular time. And so I look forward to how we're gonna, we're gonna take these next few years. Um, but I don't want us to move on without just praising God for the work that he's done in this particular moment. So that being said, if you have your Bibles, open them up to 2 Thessalonians. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. I'll be putting things up on the screens. We are going to be finishing up uh, the books of, of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Um, it's fascinating to me that these particular two letters, they're just full of rich theology. 
full of it. And in fact, all the way to 2 Thessalonians 3.5, Paul's just been unpacking tons of theology. And then the two weeks ago, Dan, if you weren't here for it, highly encourage you to listen to it. He, he took then that rich theology Paul did, and then, then Dan unpacked that for us, giving us a little bit of a theology of work, why we work, and, and why it is so important that we model Jesus and we, we, we are image bearers of God and how we work. And Dan kept saying this little statement throughout. Anytime he'd come to that idea of have nothing to do with them, you know, uh, get away from them. He kept saying this little statement, Todd will deal with that in two weeks. <laughs> now, normally I do that to people. Normally I'm the one that goes, oh yeah, yeah, I'll let Christian deal with that in a week, or I'll let whoever deal with it in a week. Well, this time it, it boomeranged on me. But this week we're going to talk about this idea of a theology of confrontation. Now, I think anytime we hear that word confrontation, if you're anything like me, that's a little bit of a spooky word. We kind of aren't sure what to do with it. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to read the passage we're going to be in, and then what I'm going to try to do is kind of work us through this idea of why I believe confrontation is not only good, but it's a gift from God that we're going to kind of talk about a little bit to help us understand how we can be the people that God intends us to be. So let me, let me read these verses for us, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go through this particular text. But here's what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3. As for you, brothers... Do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the peace of, our, of the Lord, or the, let the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Now, this idea of confrontation that's here is, I, I think, like, in some ways, the reason we don't like it is there's kind of two types of people. One of my friends, and I'll never forget this, I was talking to him, with him through confrontation, and he looked at me, and he goes, Todd, it's almost like you enjoy confrontation, which anybody that knows me knows I don't. I'm the most, I'm a huge contra, uh, uh, confrontation adverse person, but I looked at him, and I said, well, like, what is it about it? He goes, I would rather get dental work than do confrontation. But then I have this other friend, and I, I love him, so what I'm about to say, I hope he doesn't hear this podcast, but I'm going to talk about him anyway, is that I've got another friend that's kind of like, you know those people that are sin bloodhounds? And they're always like on the sniff for sin. And not only on the sniff for sin, but they're that person that at the end of the day, they, it's almost like they enjoy getting up in your grill. I would say this, those two types of people, and if you're one of them, let me just say this, they're not healthy. One person doesn't care about other people to confront them, doesn't care about going to them and, and longing that they be the person that God intends them to be. And the other person, there's an arrogance to them that somehow thinks that they're the, the, the moral police that are there to fix you, but that's not the case at all. But let me just say this, we will never be who God intends us to be without confrontation. Both the one who is confronting and the one who's being confronted, we will never be who God intends us to be apart from it. Now, I was looking up through kind of trying to understand, you know, this, this painful reality. And so I looked up the definition of confrontation and suddenly I realized why nobody wants to confront. Here's the definition. It's a hostile, I mean, who doesn't want that, right? Instantly, a hostile, you're like, oh, dang, this is going to be awesome, 
a hostile or argumentative meeting or situation between opposing parties. This is a definition of politics in the United States, by the way. But it's just this thing in which, like, who wants to do that? I don't want to do that. I mean, you look down at this definition, and I don't want it. But let me, let me ask you this question, though. Don't you, though, still want to change? Don't you want to be different? Isn't there this side of you that wants feedback into your life so that you can be this person that's transformed and made different so that you might be who God intends you to be? And so really, we're not talking about the definition as the world sees it as this hostile, argumentative meeting. But instead, what we're going to be talking about is this gift from God that allows us now to not only see wrongs within our life, but someone now lovingly coming alongside of us and helping to see how we can be transformed by the, by the, by the image of Jesus. Now, here's what I'm going to do. So from this text, I'm going to draw out like just six ideas for us that you can, you can take home and you can begin to apply it kind of to your life as we, as we look at how Paul uh, dealt with him. So how do we confront? Well, here's the first one we're going to look at. If you're gonna confront people, you have to believe that it is a good thing. Now, where do I draw this from the text? Well, look down in there, let me, let me or, or wait, first, let me, let me show you the stigma of confrontation, why it is probably you're not gonna view it as good. Sorry about that. Let me, let me show you why we don't see it as good. I got this as a quote from a guy where he just said, many of the confrontations that we have lived through, including when we have confronted others, were hurtful, destructive, embarrassing and cause significant damage to our relationships. In other words, something that should be for our good is used for evil. So in this, we've got to get that idea out of our mind, and it's hard because all of us have within our lives different ways, whether it's how our parents raise this or maybe how our marriages operate or maybe even how you parent or whatever it is that you're dealing with, there's this way in which we've got to get rid of this idea, and we've got to embrace what Paul talks about. Look down in verse 13. He says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Now, probably some of you are looking and going, but wait, where does that say that Paul's talking about confrontation being good? And the way that we get that is from context. In verses 6 through 12, coming into it, Paul was talking about a confrontation that's happening within there where Paul's calling the believers to tell those who, who, who aren't working. It's like, no, we got to work. We all got to pull our weight within we're doing. We need to represent God well. Or That was kind of what, what Dan talked about last week. Then, starting in verses 14 through 16, it comes back to the confrontation, meaning right in the middle of it, this statement of do not grow weary in doing good, it's about confrontation. Now, it's a truism for everything, because people use this all the time. They'll talk about this idea, man, we can't grow weary in doing good, and it is. It's a truism that applies to everything, but in this context, the context of it is Paul saying confrontation is good. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves, though, is why is it good? Well, here's where it changes a little bit by the time we get down to verse 16. Now, now go there with me. Let me show you why it's good. Verse 16. Now, may the, here it is, Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. In other words, the takeaway from talking about confrontation is this. Paul's point is when we confront like God has called us to confront, there will be peace. 
Now on one level, we need to understand this isn't talking about kind of like Eastern mysticism type peace, right? Where it's like, I'm just kind of at peace internally. Everything is good. He's not talking about that. He's talking about in this context of something that's in every way. And he's talking about it in light of confrontation because we see that. See that little word now in 2 Thessalonians? It's connected up to the rest of it. You know this. One of my favorite things in the world is schoolhouse rock, right? God brought about schoolhouse rock. What was it in the 60s? It was of God. I want you to know this, especially conjunction, junction, what's your funk? You are old. If you sang that with me, you are really old. But the conjunction is there to tell us is that when we confront like God has called us to confront, we see where peace isn't. We see where the intent of God isn't. And we want to go in there not to fix the problem from the standpoint of I'm so gracious the way I'm coming to you and fixing it. It is that I'm coming into it and I want peace. I would say this, a majority of marriages and families are as broken as they are because we don't have actually enough godly confrontation. If we had this type of confrontation that longs for the shalom of God, the good peace of God, our houses would begin to look different. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here. Within the church, I want there to be this shalom, this peace brought to bear. Now again, not necessarily inner peace alone. In fact, I think people go for inner peace because the thought of creating external peace, that seems almost impossible. But in this case, he's saying, no, this is what I want on it. Even in regards to the world in which we live, when we start talking about issues of, of abortion in Romans 12, 18, he talks about this idea. As far as it's possible amongst you, live at peace with all men. Do whatever you can where there isn't rightness and bring rightness to bear is kind of the idea. Now let me show you a little bit about what I, more of what I mean. If you got your Bibles, just maybe keep your finger in, in 1, 2 Thessalonians 3 and go back to, to 1 Thessalonians 5. Let me, let me kind of show you just what I'm talking about of, of looking where peace isn't and seeking to bring peace to bear. In 5.13, Paul is going to say this statement again. He says, I want you to be at peace amongst yourselves. That's, that's verse 13, kind of at the end of it. Now in verse 23, though, he's going to carry on. He's going to say, now may the God of peace, he's connecting it there, and the goal of the God of, the, of peace is to sanctify you completely, to cause you to be set apart for you to become the person that God intends you to be. So let me say this. Good confrontation always has within mind my desire that you become the person that God intends you to be. To be truly set apart, to be this man or this woman as God intends. That's what he's talking about when he talks about it. We're, we're to join God in this. This is where it should happen. We're to bring the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, in this particular case, peace to bear in such a way. But it's not only that, in Matthew 5, Jesus had been talking about all these different blessed be, blessed be. And one of the things that he says is, is actually blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because they shall be called what? Sons of God. Let me just say this. We as followers of Jesus, that's who we are. 
We are designed by God to bring shalom into this world in a way that no one else can. We are these peacemakers. So that's what Paul's saying. That's the first one. He says, I want you to know and I want you to believe that when I write this to you as I am led by the Holy Spirit, this confrontation is a good, good thing. That's what he's talking about. So that's the first one. Everybody with me? I didn't sound very confident. All right, I'll take it. Here's the second one. Before I confront, I've also got to understand kind of the goal of of confrontation biblically. Now, one of the things that's really important in this, you're going to see this, that Paul's going to talk about this idea because he's modeling for us what confrontation looks like. And in verse 6, he's kind of laid out this reality of what he's seeing going on within the church. And then he says... I want you all to be in accord with the tradition that you receive from us, which is just another way whenever we see this word tradition, I just want you to walk biblically. So in other words, when we talk about the goal of it, Paul is talking about this idea that he wants us to be people that make sure that we confront biblical principles, not personal pet peeves. Now, I realized this yesterday when I've got two of my kids and we're trying to do some things and I wasn't getting my job done because they had the audacity to do a lemonade stand in the middle of whatever was going on over at the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Now, they made 42 bucks, which is pretty cool. So capitalism is alive and well at my house. But as I'm working away and I'm, I'm out there, I've got my sander and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do this barn door to put over my, my bathroom because my wife and I currently don't have a door in our bathroom, which is bad. And they kept coming in and interrupting. I was getting so frustrated. And I was almost ready to confront them and this came to my mind. Todd, is this a pet peeve or a biblical principle? <laughs> and, and let me just frame it this way. Is what they're doing right now something that Jesus died for? Do you need to confront it as actual something that Jesus died for? It is sin. And so I confronted him because how dare they? No, I did. No, no, I just, I turned around to both of them. I go, I'm sorry. What do you need daddy to do? You know, so I came out and I took their money. But that's a different story. But it's just this idea that he says, I want it to be something that's, that's biblical. So what are some of the biblical principles the Bible gives us? Well, one of them is found in Matthew 18. One of the really important ones is he says, look, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. See, good confrontation respects the dignity and loves that person incredibly that they don't want others to know what you're doing. Number one, because you're trying to protect that person because in the hopes that that they might repent. But the other thing is you could see it wrongly. We're going to talk about that in a second. So he says to them, just go alone, protect their dignity, confront from a place of relationship. Make sure you know how to do it in a cultural way. One of the things I've learned is that some generations, they don't do the face-to-face thing very well. And so I've been having to learn how to like draw people into conversation through text messages. Oh my gosh. Hey, big boy, big girl, just wanted to say, you know, love you. We got a problem. Could we talk about it? You know, and then you can go confront them. But you have to first text them to let them know you want to talk with them before you go talk with them. Why would I do that? Because at the heart of it, I want to win my brother or sister. 
Some people might go, no, we're supposed to do it right away face to face. You know what? No, at the end of the day, I do want to get them in front of me. I do want it to be personal. But when you go to confront people, we're going after the dignity of that person, the love of that person. We want to win them over to be our brother. That's at the very end of that verse. Now, it's not only that we want to protect their dignity, but you see this down in James 1, is that you, when you come to somebody, understand that they're deceived. I think sometimes, like, you know, when, I don't know if you were this way when you were a little kid, but my mom used to always come in after I'd sinned, and she would always say, do you know what you're doing? Well, no. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> sometimes I did. But as you go and confront people, understand this biblically, many times they are either, number one, deceived from the standpoint they don't know what they're doing, or number two, they're so ashamed they don't know how in the world to bring it out. So in this, we even see this from James, is that they're deceived, which in other words, what that means is, is that we come to people in such a way that we want them to get what we're talking about, and it may take time to help people understand that they are deceived. Which brings us to our main point. When you confront people, begin with the end in mind. What's the end? The end is that you win your brother. The end is restoration. The end is reconciliation. The end is peace, meaning I've got to keep that as the target in mind because you know this. If you're like me, when confrontation begins and my heart starts to boil and my mind starts to race, I forget about that person in front of me and all I want to do is I want to win the argument. I'm the type of personality, I don't know if this is you, but I don't really care who's right or wrong, just that I win the argument. And we got those. But Paul is going to talk with us more, and we'll, we'll get there in just a little bit. But the key is, is we're trying to create, like he talks about in James 5, 19 through 20, we want to have peace with God. Like he talks about in Matthew 18, 15, we want to have peace with others. Like he talks about in, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, we want people prepared to do these good works, to, to live as God intends them to live. Not only that, but like even in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, man, purge the evil from among you. And I think what we miss is, is because we want God's church to be what it's intended to be. And we'll, we'll talk about that more in just a second. But Paul's point in all of this is he says, when you warn him as a brother, you gotta keep that in mind. Not only that, you must never forget who this person is. They are a brother, meaning they're a child of Jesus. I was counseling a guy who's from a, a, a Middle Eastern nation and, and we were sitting there one day and he was doing some not good things to his wife and he couldn't grasp this idea that, that of the importance of who this particular lady really is. And I looked at him and I said, what would happen to you if you were married to the, to the king of this particular country and you wronged his daughter? He looked at me, he goes, he would kill me. I go, do you understand this wife is a daughter of the king of kings? You don't mess with her. Whenever I go confront a fellow believer in Jesus Christ, we can never forget they were bought with a price. They have the lavish love of the father upon them. They're these ones that now we're coming alongside in the hope that we can truly see them transformed. We want them to be like Jesus. And the key to this is love. 
when you confront somebody, do you love them? Which brings me to this definition that I came up with, and you can take a picture or whatever you want, but this is what I came up with on, on what biblical confrontation is. Here's, here's what I put. Biblical confrontation is a personal and socially acceptable encounter. That socially acceptable is so important. Understand who you're talking to. Are they a 20-something uh, uh, Gen Z? Are they uh, somebody that, you know, is like in their 90s? Wherever they are in between, another country. We want to understand who they are in order to bring biblical truth to bear on an area of possible sin and brokenness in another person's life with the hope that the person will either one, biblically address it so that they may look like Jesus, or two, clarify their actions to alleviate your concern. You could be wrong. I think that at the end of it is the goal that we're looking for. That's where we're wanting to dive in. So that's what we're talking about, the grasping the goal of it biblically. But there's a third one that we'll kind of lay out here. Is that one is, is just that the third one is, is that we need to acknowledge and address our limitations. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I think if you go back to this verse, if you look at it, Paul talks about in, in verse 15 this idea of don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Meaning you're a brother too. The other day when, when I had two of my kids at my house, they were arguing over something and one of them was trying to make the other and he looks over at him and he, he was kind of angry and he goes, stop telling me what to do. And the other one said, yeah, but I'm older. But he goes, yeah, but you're just a kid too. <laughs> Let me say this, never forget you're a kid too. We are all broken. And let me just say this, the best people at confronting are people that understand they are broken. We're just a brother. We're in as much of need of the grace of Jesus as this one that we're going to speak to in the hopes that they'll get it. So in other words, I think what Paul's talking about is this warning as a brother is to not forget who, who you are. That's why Jesus in this, this classic verse, it, it verses in Matthew 7, right? He's talking about the idea of, of having the plank in your eye, which is just a log, or having the speck in your eye. He finishes in verse 5, and he says, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will be able to clearly see the speck in your brother's eye. Let me, let me just say it this way. Before you go confront people, confront yourself. What I mean by that is acknowledging that we don't see everything perfectly. We don't understand it. And so before you write a note that's telling people what they're thinking or they're not thinking, or before you go to them and blast them with a thought that you have, the first thing that you could understand is, is that you may be wrong. Now, I say that from somebody who's learned a lot because oftentimes I'm a bull in a china closet. I just go into the situation busting to no end and I'm kind of you know, flailing around being an ape and in the middle of all of it, I have been wrong so many times and I've hurt that precious person that I'm coming in to talk to. In this, to warn as a brother, or in this case, what Jesus talks about, taking the log out of your own eye, is to understand that there's a process we need to go through so that we might be able to see things correctly so that we can actually help somebody. But not only that, it's not only at the beginning of the process, but in Galatians 6, it talks about this idea that we need to keep watching ourselves lest you too be tempted. Because as you go through the process of confronting somebody, you can begin to forget, again, who you are. Now, why do I say that? 
On a regular basis, people, when they come to me for counseling, are coming to me oftentimes at the lowest moments of their life. You know this, is that whether you're a police officer, maybe you're a fireman, you are encountering people at the lowest points of their life. You're not, you're not getting the highest picture of it. And so I'll be across from somebody, you know, and, and I'll have this total Pharisee moment as they're unpacking their life where it's like, oh, Lord, thank you that you didn't make me like them. Not only can we forget it off the front end, but we can forget it as we walk with people because we can begin to think that we're better than we are. We can begin to think we have all the answers. We don't have the answers. God's word has the answers. We are just merely ones who are bringing to bear in people's lives the amazingness of God's word. We are broken. And in this, this is what we're talking about when he says warn him as a brother. We have to keep that in mind that we could see people wrongly. We could come in with assumptions. And that's why at the end of the day, we can't assume we know everything. And let me just tell you this. I think one of the best lessons I ever learned when confronting people is to not tell them what's wrong, but instead to ask questions. Questions make the assumption, I don't have all the answers, and so let me go out and ask you questions, and in asking these questions, let's bring it to the surface. Now, it could be blatant, and then you do just need to walk up and say, hey, we got a problem here, but a vast majority of time, ask questions. This is what I think I saw. Am I seeing it correctly? Why do I say ask questions? Because oftentimes, it's hard to tell the difference between where people are. Back in 1 Thessalonians 5, you can go there if you want, Paul says this statement in verse 14, he says, I urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, that's who we're talking about in this context in 5, 6 through, through 16, but he said, be careful, because you need to encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak, but you need to be patient with all of them. Here's one of the things I've learned about confrontation when I come in and I don't know what I need to know. Oftentimes, I have admonished the faint-hearted and I've admonished the weak. I have damaged them because I haven't gone in and understood what's going on in your life right now. How can I help you? How can I understand? I would say this just from a confession standpoint. This is probably one of the biggest things I'm learning as a parent. Oh my goodness. I don't know how many of you thought you were the best parent in the world before you had kids. I seriously was amazing. And then I had children, and I felt like I had to go back to every parent that I've ever had in student ministry and go, I'm sorry, I thought I was, I thought you were terrible. I didn't realize just no parent is really that good. I remember going to my dad one time, I go, Dad, you just feel like you always got it together. He goes, uh, no, he goes, most, most times when I looked like I was confident, I had no clue what to do. Ask questions. Slow down. Let there be a process. In fact, on this particular issue, it probably took Paul a year before he confronted it. He started to kind of see it way back in 1 Thessalonians 5, but he really didn't see it until 2 Thessalonians 3. So in other words, be patient. Okay, so now we're ready to confront. We need the third one, we need to acknowledge our limitations, but here's the fourth one. Know the biblical issue that you are actually confronting. 
Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Paul kind of comes in, and, and he's going to say this statement. Look down in 14. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter. In other words, if, if anyone doesn't obey in, in this letter, we mean by God's word. If, if they don't obey in this particular case, then they're being disorderly. But let me say this. If not, that's the if statement, don't confront them. If you can't find within it a biblical principle for confrontation, don't confront don't. In fact, I would say this, a vast majority of people have been hurt not by the truths of Scripture, but by you thinking that you know what the truth of Scripture is and going and blasting people. And I, again, I'm, I'm just as guilty at this. You find this like in, in 3.6 where he talks about this idea at the very end of it, in accord with the tradition that you receive from us, make sure that it's a biblical principle. Now, for Paul, we see this. He knew the biblical principle if anyone's not willing to work. This is what he's talking about. In Genesis 1, God created us. He, he worked. He created us then to bear his image. We're to work. In Genesis 2.15, he talks about this idea that he was supposed to tend the garden to get the, the food from it. But even after sin in this, he says, no, you're going to work. It's just work's going to really stink now, but you're going to work for your bread. And so Paul's pointing to an absolute biblical principle here saying, hey, we can't do this. We need to live like God's called us to live. Not only that, but if people don't live, if they live wrongly, look at the very end of verse 11. He, he talks about this idea of idleness and idleness. And then in verse 11, he says, when we're not busy at work, we're busy bodies. Now on one level, right, I read that the first time and I'm like, ooh, a busy body. Watch out. You know? It's like, well, he's not a murderer. He didn't like kill anybody. He's not stealing things. Like why in the world is this such a big deal? One of the things was, is I went and looked up the definition of busy body. Here's what it says. A meddling or prying person. Now, again, you're like, eh. you know, when's the last time somebody said, oh, my gosh, I feel like the worst person in the world, like a meddler. <sighs> but watch something. I want you to see something in First Peter. But let not, none of you suffer as a murderer, serious, a thief, serious, evildoer, serious, or what? Peter's like, yeah, you're basically, you're basically the same as a murderer. Whoa. Paul saw the destruction that the tongue brings into the church. James talked about it. He, he didn't talk about it in this way in which we're talking about murder or thievery. He says, oh, that tongue that you have that can be used to bless people so much can also be like fire that goes through a field and destroys everything. In other words, Paul's coming to them and bringing them this biblical principle saying, we, this has got to stop if we're going to be the people that God intends us to be. It is a serious thing to be. And every time I still say it, it's like meddler. Meddler, what are you? I'm a meddler. But we got to get into our head this idea. It is on the same level, the same seriousness as the sins that Peter's laying out in 1 Peter 4. It is tragic. So we need to know the biblical issue we're confronting. So that's the, the, the fourth thing. Here's the fifth thing. We need to confront patterns, not bad days. In other words, all of us have bad days, don't we? 
I woke up this morning, I was having a great day. One of my children woke up this morning having a very bad day. And this child didn't understand what a great mood I was in. And so I'm playing Alexa within this child's room and you know, I'm dancing in front of them just to help them be happy, but they were having a bad day. Now, I think this is a very normal thing where sometimes people, especially those that are kind of the, 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 the sin bloodhounds, they think they have to confront everything. Now, here's what I want to show you because actually there's a biblical principle behind this that is very important. Now, there's always an exception to the rule. If somebody's doing something very serious, we have to stop them. Okay, so I'm not talking about that particular instance. But in this particular case, Paul says, in this context of understanding this particular sin, I want y'all to take note of that person. In other words, not just one person sees it, but there's groups of people that in some way have seen this going on. I would even say it this way, the way that the context reads out, it's actually a pattern within their lives. Now you see this pattern when in verses six and 11, if you, if you go back there, but you see this idea of them walking in idleness or disorderly or walk in idleness, this idea disorderly. In other words, that word walk, it's this Greek word peripateo, which means to, to be ongoingly doing something. In other words, it's not the first time that they've done it. There is a pattern within their lives. Paul is saying to them, confront that, but don't confront bad days because we all have bad days and we'll talk about what we do when people have bad days. But his point here is, is we confront patterns. Now for those, and one of, the, one of the guys reminded me, I think it was you, Bob, that brought this up when we were talking in, in sermon prep. He brought this idea up in 1 Peter 4, 8, is that on those days where it's just a bad day, there's something absolutely beautiful about just love covers a multitude of sins we realize that all of us have bad days. And then I was looking around again within Proverbs 19.11, it says, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. We have bad days. If you're that sin bloodhound, let people have bad days. But I would say it this way, when we see patterns, we need to dive in other people's lives out of love. So we confront patterns, not bad days. Here's the very last one. We need to focus on being faithful, not on outcomes. What I mean by that is we cannot change people. I have tried so hard to change my wife, <laughs> vice versa. <laughs> she has tried so hard to change me. I still can't put my socks in the dirty clothes, right? I mean, it's just like, not that that's it. Well, it might be a sin especially my socks, but there's just this way in which, right, we, we can't change people. I know that was one of the biggest things I was asking my dad before he passed away. We were sitting around and we were working on the house and, and he goes, how can I pray for you? You know, and I said, man, you know, just Lisa and I are trying to make sure we honor Jesus and how we parent. And I, I just looked at him and I said, what's the biggest thing you learned about parenting? He said, you can't change your kids. Only God can. You can provide the right atmosphere, you can be faithful to the atmosphere, but you can't produce outcomes. Now I think we see this within verse 14 where we can't produce it, but let me tell you this, whenever we go through confrontation, it gets very difficult. 
Now, in this particular context, this becomes sin in which literally if you look at like Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5, uh, somebody has gone to them and sought their love, uh, to love them through that. Then they've gone with two or three others and still there hasn't been repentance. We've told the church. And there's this way in which finally with sin or, or even like within the pastoral epistles where Paul says to Timothy, warn him twice, warn him three times and then have nothing to do with somebody. There comes a point where literally what you have to do is you have to let people go get their sin. You see this like within the prodigal, don't you? The young man comes to the father, right? And he thinks he's got everything figured out. And he's like, give me my money, pops, before you die. Which, by the way, for those of you that are younger, wouldn't recommend you do that to your parents. Just a thought. They probably don't want to give you the money before they die. Just, just keep it in there. Bad thing. But the other part about it was, is the father let him go. And then finally, at the very end of it, we find him in the midst of shame, Now, in this particular verse, this is important, is that we're to have nothing to do with him, not we are supposed to shame people. We are never to bring shame upon people, but we can allow people to go get their sin, and as they get their sin, they bring shame upon themselves. We don't have to shame them. Sin does that to them. You see this within Matthew 18. You, you, like I talked about earlier, you, you send the two or three others. You, you go after them as a local church, but finally, if they refuse to listen to the church, then you let them go be a Gentile and a tax collector. Go, go get your sin in the hopes, though, when we get to 1 Corinthians 5, that there will be this destruction of the flesh, but at the very end of it, because we want that person to be saved on the day of the Lord. We don't want them to be in shame. We want them to experience now the honor of Jesus as he has rescued them and saved them. But what I mean is you have to, I can't control outcomes, is that sometimes when we go down this path, it gets rocky but we have to stay in this particular vein of following Jesus in this way we're to trust the process we're to make sure that we don't begin to strain at gnats and swallow camels that was before but we have to stay in this process so that's that one focus on being faithful not on outcomes Now, here's where all of them kind of fit together. So if you want to take a picture of it for yourself, you totally can right here. But but let me end in this way. At the very end in verse 16, it talks about this idea. Why do we do it? Because we want peace. When my oldest daughter, Brianna, was a little girl, she totally ripped her lip open. and, And my wife and I have this agreement that when it's time to have fun, she goes with them. When there's blood and destruction, I go with them. And and um. So there was blood and destruction. So I, I grabbed her. We went to the hospital. You know, we get there, and, and, and it was. It was like ripped up there, you know, and I'm looking at my little girl, and I'm trying to act cool on the outside while blood is coming down her face. And she's, Dad, is it okay? Is it okay? And by the way, I think that's the one time it's okay to lie. Um, <laughs> and so I'm hugging her, and, and, and I'm not like a really, I'm not good at like um, lovey-dovey stuff. You can tell that. I'm not a good hugger or anything like that. I'm trying to get better. But I'm struggling, trying to make her feel good. And all of a sudden, this nurse comes in. And she grabs her by the hand. She goes, oh, honey, ouch. So I'm writing in my notes, call her honey, ouch. You know? <laughs> and, and so, so then she goes, wow, what are we going to do here? And she kind of looked at it. And she goes, I'm going to be real gentle, you know. And she's all gentle. So I'm writing down say I'm going to be gentle even if I'm not. And, and, 
And she's looking at her and she, and she goes, well, who's your doctor today? And, and Brianna looked back and she goes, I don't know. And she looks at the, at the sheet and she goes, oh my goodness, you wouldn't believe it. And I don't remember the doctor's name, but she goes, you have Dr. Smith. And my daughter looks at her and she goes, is that good? And she goes, oh my gosh. When it comes to things like that, there is nobody that leaves a more beautiful scar than her. Now there's something cool about that. The goal of confrontation is that we will, because the faithful wounds of a friend, there will be a wound that takes place when we confront. But the beauty of confrontation done biblically is that we can leave a beautiful scar. All of us in here have them, don't we? Those scars that we look at and we go, that one's good. That one's beautiful. So as we look at confrontation, we have to remember that it's a good thing. We have to remember that it's how to do it biblically. We need to remember that we have to acknowledge and address our own limitations. We have to know the biblical issue that we're confronting. We need to confront patterns, not bad days. We need to focus on being faithful, not outcomes. But we must never forget, we are peacemakers who dive in the lives of people so that they might live as God intended them, peace. And so who's ready to go confront? (laughs) So let's do, let's be God's people to confront. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Father, I pray that as we take and absorb in this particular text, I pray within Cornerstone that we would be faithful at confrontation. Father, not because we think we have all the answers. Father, as ones that are broken and there's a fear at confronting. But Father, because we understand that while there might be a cost, that we love people enough that we want them to see and we want others to point out in our lives where there's not peace. Father, would this be a church, though, that doesn't become like Pharisees? Help us not to become like the older brother of the prodigal. Instead, Father, would you help us be truly like Jesus? Help us to know those moments that we are talking to a Pharisee or help us to know when we're talking to those that are truly broken. Help us to know in those moments what does it look like to to deliver a beautiful scar. And Father, at the end of it, I pray that not so that just each one of us individually can be who you intend us to be, but Father, I really desire the cornerstone because we know how to confront biblically. We dive into one another's lives and this church lives as you've called us to live. Father, we acknowledge we are far from perfect. We are so imperfect. And so please, would you use us in one another's lives, in our relationships and our friendships to walk with one another through those places of brokenness in the hopes of seeing beautiful scars. In your precious name we pray, amen.